This is a Coastal Community Church podcast. Welcome to Coastal Sermons, a weekly podcast designed to inspire and instruct people in walking out their faith. These are recordings of our Sunday gatherings where we broadcast the weekly messages from our campus in beautiful seaside Berlin, Maryland. Find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or find our full video library on our YouTube channel at Coastal Community Church in Maryland. In the 1980s, Jim Baker was one of the most well-known evangelists, saw him all over the television. Um, He had one of the largest television ministries of the time. But then, unfortunately, in 1983, he had an extramarital affair, followed not soon after by then uh, being arrested for mail fraud. And so his arrest and every day of his trial was plastered all over CNN for the world to see. He was sentenced to 45 years in prison. And uh, very quickly, it didn't take but a few weeks, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his ministry. He lost everything that he owned. A few years after being in prison, he invited a pastor by the name of John Bevere to come and visit him. John didn't really know him, but agreed to it. Um, As John went to visit him and kind of got comfortable uh, with Jim Baker, he asked him a question. He said, at what point during your failure did you fall out of love with Jesus? When did you stop loving him? Jim Baker answered him back, John, this prison is not God's judgment on my life, but it's mercy. I believe if I had continued down the path that I was on, I would have ended up in hell. Then he said this, I have always loved Jesus, yet I didn't fear God. I'm like millions of other Americans who love Jesus, but they don't fear him. Today, we are starting a new series. Our teaching team over the next eight weeks is going to take you through the series, Deadly Deeds. We are going to look at seven case studies on sin. We're going to look at pride, envy, anger, greed, sloth, gluttony, and lust. Sounds like a party, doesn't it? (laughs) These are often referred to as the seven deadly sins. Now, they're not caused this because they are the most lethal. All sin is deadly. So the reason that they're referred to as the seven deadly sins is really more so because they represent all the rest. Um, They're kind of the sources of sin, if you will. In in some ways, I think we could describe them as the root from which all other sins spring up. So today, we're going to sit up camp in Jeremiah, talking about some of his uh, insights for us. And Jeremiah is the last prophet that God sent to the people of Judah just before their nation and their culture completely was collapsed. Soon after the nation will be invaded, they will be carried off into exile. And God's trying really hard to get their attention. He's trying to get their attention through the servant Jeremiah and through these sermons that we read about uh, in Jeremiah 2 and so on in, in the book of Jeremiah. And God's trying to address this question. He's trying to address the question that people had of why are our lives, why is our nation, why is our culture falling apart? And so we'll pick it up in verses 4 to 9 of Jeremiah 2. Listen to the word of the Lord, people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far? 
They worshipped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death where no one lives or even travels? And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled the land and corrupted the possessions that I had promised you. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me. The rulers turned against me, and the prophets, the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. Therefore, I will bring my case against you, says the Lord. In verses 11 and 12, has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they are not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. Finally, in verse 13, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fount of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So let's break this down for just a minute to kind of understand the weight and kind of grasp what it is that the preacher Jeremiah has kind of broken down here for us before we dig in, dig in deep on s- some smaller parts. Zoom out for just a second. So first of all, he's, he's, he's bringing it back to their ancestors and talking about what happened. What, what in the world is going on here? I brought you out of Egypt, and, and, and do you remember the place that we made it through? Do you remember that desolate land, the desert? People don't even travel there, let alone live there, and I took you through that. And, and not only that, but then I got you to where we were taking you, and then you defiled it. Then you corrupted what it was once we got you to the land of fruit, land of, of milk and honey. And then the leaders, the priests, well, they didn't come around saying, well, where is the Lord? The teachers, they ignored me. So I'm going to bring my case against you. Because what, what really is the problem, what we're going to dig into some here in a minute, my people have exchanged their glorious God for these worthless idols. And then in verse 13, that's, that's really, I, I love verse, well, love verse, that may be, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't love this. This isn't exactly feeling good about things, but I think 13 helps us the best for understanding what's going on. Um, and in this version, it says they've done two evil things. But in a number of other versions, it talks about how they've had two sins. And both of these sins kind of fit together, and, and they're connected through this analogy that we see of water. So you see, uh, to flash back for just a second, Israel during this time had two really main seasons. They had a wet season and a dry season. So their winter, it was very wet. Um, they had a lot, of, a lot of rain they could collect then. But then in the dry season, it, it, it was, hence the name, quite dry. It was hard to find water. So if you live near flowing waters... If you live near a spring, you were especially blessed. It was a huge blessing in any season because you had water for drinking, water for your crops, water for your livestock, even water for bathing. Now, all of us in this room are fortunate that water scarcity is not a problem for us. Just outside these doors, there's multiple faucets. I know just on the other side of the wall there. You go home and you have, some people even have faucets like out in their, their pole shed and stuff. I mean, we have water everywhere, but that was not the case for them. Especially in the dry season, water was quite limited. It was a problem. Oh, by the way, that whole water scarcity thing, that's another good reason for considering giving to Convoy of Hope. One of the other things that Convoy of Hope does is they take people that don't have available clean water and they help them get it. (laughs) 
So just plant that out there. I know that one, that one does something for me a little bit, people needing water. Back to Jeremiah, though. So a natural spring, it provided this huge blessing that people would come to over and over and over again, and literally, life would continue from what it provided. God was that for his people, and they walked away from it. They forsook him, forsaken, for, they walked away, <laughs> whatever that should be. Now, if you're like me, you hear that, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what were they thinking? How stupid could you be? Like, but follow me, stay with me here for a minute. See, the other part is that they built these cisterns. Cisterns were something that was to hold water. So during the wet season, you would be able to collect water, but then in the dry season, you would have it available in these huge cisterns. And, and, and that makes sense. That, that's what they would want to do. So the analogy that Jeremiah is making is that the people had stopped going to the living water. They had stopped going to God as their source. And instead, they built these cisterns. They built these cisterns so that they could get what they needed. But it wasn't working. It's kind of how technology works sometimes. Like when it works, it's fantastic. And when it doesn't, you want to like yell things and shake things and so on and so forth. And that's exactly what was happening to them. But in this case, it was the life-giving water. I don't know about you, but that hits a little bit close to the vest. When I am not daily, constantly, regularly going to God as my source of life, and instead, I come up with my own solution, my own solution to fix it, and it falls apart in my face. At times, we walk away from God. We don't go to Him like we should or maybe like we once did. We fill our lives with what we think is going to get us through life and all of its troubles and all it has to bring, and it's a leaky cistern. On to Jeremiah 2, verse 19. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize... Pause for just a minute on that. The idea of consider, when you look at, at the word and, and how it's used in other connections and cross-referencing, this idea is kind of where you want to wrap your head around it. You want to really understand. And part of this is to stop, pause, take a breath, and look back. Look back at each of those tiny little steps that you took, each of those little inches that you moved away from where you were to get to where you are. Consider that. And then realize... Realize in your own mind, you got to own it. You've gotten there. It's your own fault. Don't deny it. And you know what? In some regards, the root of all sin is denial in one way or another. The deepest problem we have is that we don't realize we're a helpless sinner. Consider then and realize. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God. Why did they sin? They did not consider. They did not realize. And the biggest factor we see at the end of the verse there, they have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is the essence of sin. If you were to ask somebody to define sin, they'd probably say something like, sin is breaking the rules. Sin is disobeying God. Sin is lying, murdering, stealing, cheating. And yes, those are examples of sins, but sin is a position. It's a posture of your heart. And this posture is exactly what Jeremiah is preaching to God's people. Their hearts were out of line with where God wanted them to be. We see it spelled out in a few verses earlier. God states in the passage that the heart of why we break the rules, 
the heart, the reason of it for, behind why we forsake him, the essence of why is that we have no awe of him. We have no awe of God. Now, in this translation, we, we read it as no awe. But in most translations, instead, it says, they have no fear of me. The fear of the Lord is kind of one of those central themes that we see throughout the Bible, and it's really quite misunderstood regularly. We hear that phrase regularly, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. But what does it mean to fear the Lord, and why do we have such a hard time, such a difficult time understanding what it means? I think that really, in some regards, the Bible has kind of the use of fear in two different ways. And for the most part, in our common language, it's really used in, in one common kind of way. Fear for us usually means the anticipation of some type of pain. Um, in 1 John 4.18, let's take a look there. There is no fear in love. Perfect love puts out fear of our heart. Try that again. Perfect love puts fear out of our hearts. People have fear when they are afraid of being punished. The man who is afraid does not have perfect love. Like I've read that so many times this past week, and even now as I'm reading it, it kind of sounds like, a, like an oxymoron or like some kind of double talk, but it's not. God doesn't want us to be afraid of him. There's a huge difference between being scared of God and fearing God. Kind of, let's go to the example of Adam and Eve. When Adam was in the garden, right after that initial sin, he was afraid. But let's call it what it is. He was scared of God and probably should have been. As another example, I have a couple teenagers now, back when they were little and cute, um, if they were scared of me, then that's something really that like, I should be talking to some kind of local agency for protection of children about. Um, because if they're scared of me, that means that they're, they're afraid of what I'm going to do. They're afraid of being injured. They're afraid of something coming down from dad. That, that's not healthy. But that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Adam was scared in the garden. Did he have the fear of the Lord? No, he wanted to hide. He was looking for a spot to get away. And I think all of us have been there whenever parents, are, they, they middle name you and you run and hide and look for a spot. I mean, we've been there. But that wasn't the case here. He was afraid, he was afraid scared. He did not have a fear of the Lord. The person who fears the Lord has nothing to hide, not looking for a place to hide. Instead, Exodus 20, 20, we see Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so you may have enough fear of him to keep you from sinning. When I was a child, I grew up in the South and uh, went to church Sundays and Wednesdays and most Mondays and some Fridays. And we had tent revivals and we had services and we had sermons and sermons. And one of the things that often got brought up was this approach of hell and damnation. They would talk about all the sins that exist out there and how if you do that, that's going to lead to death and death will lead to an eternity of pain and suffering. And they were very loud and sweat a lot. I remember that too. But through that, as I'm sure makes sense, I became afraid of sinning. I didn't like what they were telling me up there. I didn't like what they were yelling about. I became afraid of God's wrath in that. That's not what God desires. Instead, it should be us not wanting to sin because we are terrified of being separated from God. God doesn't desire we avoid sin because we fear His wrath, but that we avoid sinning because we are terrified of being separated from Him. We don't want to do anything that will hurt our relationship with Him or how we're connected to Him. 
After high school, I had the good fortune to go to Carson Newman College. It's now Carson Newman University, Carson Newman University down in Tennessee. And although it was a Christian college, uh, this was also the first time in my life that I was not living at home and I was kind of on my own. And so as a part of that, I kind of decided, hey, you know what? I don't have to get up and go to church anymore. In those days, you see, and, and some of you that are maybe teenagers or have college-age kids, you know, like back in those days, I could sleep till 11, 12, 1 p.m., nothing. It was no big deal. Now my back is aching by like 7.30. I know the time. But then I could sleep all day long. So I decided I would attend Bedside Baptist for much of my college because why not? Some, most of the weeks that I did go, it was mainly because my girlfriend, my now wife at the time, was going, and I decided it was a good idea. It may seem like a simple concession, but I told myself how I wasn't living a crazy, sinful life. I went to a Christian college. I hung out with Christian folks that were there on campus. Why not sleep in and enjoy some extra rest? Despite the other godly connections in my college life, I would say that this selfish choice made a huge impact on my faith, on my choices, and I would argue even what it was I decided to do and figure out the major and all that kind of mess too. Because you see, for almost two decades before, I went to church at least every week, usually multiple times a week. It was a staple in my life. It was a refreshing spring that I constantly drew from. And then (laughs) I replaced it with a leaky cistern. You see, I didn't fear the Lord. And, and we don't go to church because we're afraid of God, like He's going to smite us if we miss a Sunday. That's not the reason. But instead, going to church is one important way for us to stay connected with God and who He's calling us to be and how we understand that through worship, fellowship, stewardship, instruction. I was missing out on all of that. As I graduated from college, I reestablished going to church as a weekly priority, and I noticed a huge difference in my life, a huge difference in my connection with God. Not only did I get connected through church, but then the other disciplines in my life, those faith disciplines that we need, they became a priority again. They became important again. I was no longer stagnant in my faith, no longer stagnant, but began to grow. Fear of the Lord is about a relationship. There is such a thing as positive fear, positive awe of God and who He is. We see this in Proverbs Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their hearts falls into trouble. And then in Psalms 134, but you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. God uses the term to speak to an inward awe a delight, a reverence to who God is. Positive fear doesn't have torment. It has fear in the relationship. Here's the fear of the Lord. It's when God becomes absolutely central to everything we do, everything we say, everything we are, everything we do with anybody else. He becomes everything to us, meaning you can't do anything without referring back to Him, to His glory, to His majesty, to His power. No matter what you do, you ask him, how does this decision, how does this action, how does this attitude involve you, God? How does this affect or impact my relationship with him? Because I don't want to do anything that will hinder that. I'm af- I, that's what I'm afraid of, God. I'm afraid of life without you. And my sin is going to separate me from you. And I just can't allow that to happen. 
So that's the essence of sin. So when I lie, when I cheat, when I steal, why did I choose to do that? Why would I ever disobey the, the Lord God Almighty? Well, because in that, in that moment, whatever the sin act is, we're holding something in more awe than we're holding God. We found something more wonderful to us in that moment than God. And, and this is why you can't have a partial relationship with God. This is why you can't just have a little bit of religion or a little bit of morals. I, I heard it, I've heard it said a multitude of times, you got the fence, you got the world on one side and God on the other, and you're on both sides of the fence. It doesn't work that way. You got to have God smack dab in the center of every area of your life. Your mind, your heart, your strength, your energy, everything. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wisdom, all-authority, how can you only invite him in at certain parts? God's not here to be an assistant to our lives or like I need a little extra vitamin C, I need a little extra God like some kind of supplement. He has to be all. How can we relate to him in any other way than utter devotion? If he is truly God, then he must be centered. Someone I, we just can't do life without. We have to constantly, constantly, constantly be asking, God, what do you think of this? When we fear God, we love what he loves, and we hate what he hates. Everything else is sin. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the seven deadly sins. We're going to talk about the seven roots of sin that we allow to draw our focus away from God and who he wants us to be. You know, I think, I think Jim Baker, I think he had it right. I think there are millions and millions and millions of us that we love Jesus. We do. We sincerely do so very much. But he was also right about the other part. We don't fear him. So many of us have lost our awe of who he is. So where do you fit in this equation? People live together. They watch what they want. They do what they want. They generally make decisions without ever considering how it impacts their relationship with God. If we're going to be who we've been created to be, the church that God desires, we need to find awe of him. We have found awe in other things, those leaky cisterns, which then lead us to sin. And ultimately, that separates us from God. I once heard the Christian life described this way. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. And that pattern continues over and over and over again for the rest of our lives. But hopefully, hopefully each time that we get up as Christ followers, we refocus our awe on him. We regain that fear of the Lord. So we fall down again, but not as quickly. We get up a little bit faster. We regain our awe of him, who he's called us to be. We ponder, we consider, we do those things that are gonna make us into who he has called us to be. So what do we do now? A couple things I'd recommend for you. First of all, commit to come throughout this entire series. Better understand what it is that causes you to fall in your walk of faith. So hopefully you can avoid it a little bit better, get up a little bit faster. Secondly, consider and realize where you are. Wrap your head around where it is you are 
and acknowledge that you've slid away from God. And what is it you need to do about that? If you're not sure, go to God. Wrestle with Him together. He'll help you figure it out. And then lastly, and this one's a little bit bold of an idea, talk to somebody about it. A family, a friend, somebody from the prayer team here in just a few minutes. Talk about where it is that you have lost your awe. Maybe talk about some next steps for how to regain that fear of the Lord that you need. Lord, as we leave here today, we pray, God, that we would go out in awe of you. God, I pray that we would take you with us in everything we say, everything we do, every decision that we make. We would see how our relationship with you is connected through what we are doing. God, help us to put you at the center of our lives so we fear you and let nothing separate us from you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good week, church.